Go to Luke chapter 15. Uh, that's where we're going to find ourselves. If there's any older burden kids in the room, I think they, they already headed out to be taught. So if you're still in here, you can head out to the classroom. But um, here's what we uh, basically do on Sunday mornings as we gather. In case you're new or you're wondering what we do, we love to worship Jesus because we believe Jesus, one, is worthy of worship. We believe he is, he is God. He was the one who came, who had to come to rescue and ransom us back to himself. So uh, we all live in a post-Genesis 3 world. That means that all of us are born by nature and choice, broken sinful, not wanting to worship God, but be our own God and elevate ourselves above him. And so because of that, that, that's treason. That's treason against the God who made everything. So in light of that, Jesus sees that problem, sees that issue, and does what is necessary. So we're just a people, very simply, who, who celebrate God because God has been gracious to us. And because God's been gracious to us, we should be some of the most gracious people that walk the planet. You're going to see this morning something that may shock you in Luke chapter 15, because Jesus has been throughout his ministry teaching and preaching and, and laying before people this idea of the kingdom of God. Now, what the kingdom of God basically said is there's a, another world, another realm where, where there is holiness, there is perfection, there is sinlessness, and you can't be a part of that kingdom unless the king lets you in. And the king lets you in by laying down his life for you in the person and work of Jesus. So Jesus is rolling out that he really is the king of that kingdom, and he's the one who really grafts people in to this kingdom of God. And, and so what you're going to see this morning, Luke chapter 15, is it's really kind of the the pinnacle of his journey from now towards Jerusalem, towards the cross, towards giving himself as a sacrifice for those he would save. Um, He's going to see something, you're going to see something that might shock you. And that's that it actually gives God joy, that it gives heaven joy to see lost people found. Like it, it actually, in the heart of God, moves into a place of joy to see people who did not love the God that we love, who did not serve the God that we served, who do not love to walk in rightness, love to walk in holiness, love to be made righteous. He actually loves and longs to see people made new who have broken paths and messy presence. He loves to engage that and work in that and make new what wasn't new. So, so I know for some of us, it's like, wow, if there's a God that exists, I'm, I'm sure that he just wants to smite me. I'm sure he just wants to punish me, and he should, right? He should punish all of us because of the weight of our sin against his holy nature, but God in his grace and crazy mercy sends Jesus. And so here we're going to see an illustration of God being shown and and seen joy because of him rescuing sinners. And here's a great question for me to roll out as we consider our role in the text this morning. What's your attitude more like? Is your attitude more like God that loves to see sinful men and women who are lost being found? Or is your attitude more like the religious that love to judge, condemn, and ostracize the outcast? That's a good question for our hearts as we roll in. So um, thank goodness that the heart of God is not like that. Ezekiel will say he takes no delight in the punishment of the wicked. Uh, We would, right? Amen that God is a God who loves to make his enemies, his friends, and his children. We would not. God does. So we're going to see things that are not natural to us that are natural to God, which is beautiful. Chapter 15 um, should really be seen as one long story. It's kind of like just, just one long response to a question. And you got to see the question at the beginning because if you rip that question out, then the whole text loses its meaning. You're seeing basically lost being found and celebration and joy. Okay, that's really what you're seeing. So you're seeing a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. We're going to look at the lost sheep and lost coin. And the next week, one of the most popular parables, you've probably all heard the prodigal son, uh, but this week we'll stay there. So verse 1 of chapter 15, here's what Luke writes. Now the tax collectors and sinners 
were all drawing near to Jesus, to him, that's Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, so, so this, this verse right here sets up everything else you're going to hear. If you miss this text, then you're really ripping out the full context and weight and meaning of everything, everything else you're going to read. And here, Luke says that Jesus is doing something that the religious hate, right? They're grumbling. They're, de- they're despising the tax collectors and sinners. Now, now, just so we get our heads around this, so we can land well on our feet, I want you to understand the gravity of this, and we've seen this. You've got tax collectors, okay? That, that's that's the, the first people group. Now, you saw this in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus uh, rescues Levi or Matthew, right, the tax collector. We talked about just, just how the, 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 the religious elite and even Jews especially hated these people. Here, here's why. You've got Rome, right, who ruled the known world at the time. You've got India to England of them occupying massive Tory. Many of you, if you know your historical uh, studies, you know that Rome was an oppressive government. It was a horrific government. It was a murderous government. You know, they actually took men, women, and children and crucified them naked along the road so that if you travel to the city to get supplies, to get needs, to get wants, you could walk by and see this to know you don't mess with Rome. Right? This was, so if you've got this huge army that is conquering territories that's growing, you need to be able to fund that massive army so you make taxes. And here's what happened. They had tax collectors that helped fund this, but you had Jewish citizens, Israelites, who would actually buy Roman franchises so they would extort money from their own people to supply and support Roman assets. This is like you living next to your neighbor who supports a government that murdered your family. So you bet they hated one another. You bet tax collectors were the scum of the earth. They were looked at as evil. They were looked at as awful. They were the worst of traitors, lowest of the low. And then you have sinners. So you got tax collectors, Jesus is meeting with, and then you got sinners. Now, sinners is, is not like um, what you and I think. We, you and I think sinner like just the drunk drawer, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. Well, maybe you don't believe you're a sinner. Hopefully, you'll see that later. But uh, it's just kind of this junk drawer. We're all kind of sinners. Uh, no, no, sinner here is, is this label you gave somebody who had a deformity, who was an outcast, who had an illness, because they view, the religious elite viewed sin as something that you could get, you could catch, right, like a disease. So don't, don't get around me, you're, you're a sinner, that sin might jump on me. Okay, so that's why repeatedly throughout Luke, we've been seeing the leper, we've been seeing those with deformities and illness, right? The religious are always asking, well, well how'd he get this? Who, did he sin or his parents? And they're consistently saying, Jesus is saying, nobody, that's not the answer. And then Jesus heals them on the spot to give glory to his father. So, so you, can't, you can't mess with that. He says, hey, there are good things that happen to bad people and bad things that happen to good people so you can annihilate karma. You've got God that sovereignly works rules and reigns in all people in different ways. You've got sinners and tax collectors, outcasts, scum of the earth, and the issue is they're coming to Jesus and Jesus is dining with them. These people are like, those are the people I want, I want to be farthest away from, and Jesus is saying, those are the people I want to engage Those are the people that I want to show mercy and kindness to. And so, in this case, we see sinners as the class of people marked by deformities, disease, illness. This is the prostitutes, the slave traders, the tax collectors. And they start grumbling, going, man, this guy spends time with sinners and eats with them. This is just their social theology. Right? You got us, the religious elite that are on varsity, and all the outcasts are on JV. That's how they basically separated the moral system. It was strictly a system based on morality. And so you bet the tax collector and sinners taught from day one, you're cursed by God, you're judged by God, so you better launch headlong into sin. He ain't going to forgive you. He ain't going to show you mercy. He doesn't love you. You're wicked, 
you're a traitor. And here they are gathering with Jesus. And so here's what's happening. If you can get your picture that we've been seeing forever, the religious are living in such a way that their morality, their moral uprightness is somehow gaining for them favor of God. It's currying them favor for God. And because of their uprightness before God, everybody else won't deserve and won't be given the same favor that they've been given from God. So there's much judgment, much condemnation, much elevation of themselves. And and here's why that's so dangerous. At the end of the day, you know who the people are that crucified Jesus? It's not the terrorists. It's not not the hip-hop guys. It's not the, the girls in their clear heels. It's all the religious going crucify that man. I hate the way he attacks my good works. I hate the way he attacks my righteousness. Kill him. Right? It's not who we would think would be the ones yelling out claims. It's not any of those people. It's going to be the religious ones who think that. So we need to be very, very careful, brothers and sisters. That's why I continue to say this about our arrogance, about our pride, about the self-righteousness that is so prevalent, especially in us as church people. Right? It's so easy to start elevating yourself and looking down on everybody else. And Jesus will repeatedly attack that sort of system. So, so here's what we see. He's going to tell two parables. He's going to give illustration as to how to dismantle the thinking inside the religious Pharisees and scribes. He tells them one parable. A parable is very simply a story to illustrate a theological point. So here's what he says in the first one. He says, what man of you, he's talking to the Pharisees and scribes here, based upon their question, attacking Jesus for sitting with nasty people. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Okay, so so parables basically, if you want to break them down, have kind of like three categories. You've got the story itself, which is clear. It's it's very usually easy to understand. Uh, Then you have kind of the ethical aspect, the ethical component, which was also very easy to understand. Then you have like a theological or Christological aspect. That's where do I see God in this? Where do I see Jesus in this? Where is he moving? What does he want me to see about his character and nature and about me that's helpful and right and good? And so um, we're going to look at that. And and you got to understand first off in this day, these people lived a, a village life. Okay, so, so herding sheep was very common, and uh, just so you understand, most people, uh, maximum would have maybe like 40 to 50 sheep. Okay, you didn't have 100 sheep. What they would do is each village might at times just consolidate all their sheep, and they'd hire a shepherd to watch all their sheep so they could go work during the day. Now, now here's the thing. You wouldn't hire a shepherd from the outside, because shepherds from the outside usually killed or, or destroyed. They were usually thieves. So uh, you get somebody within your camp, within your village, usually needed work, needed money, needed a job, and they've got vested interest now in the sheep. And so they would kind of watch those sheep throughout the week. And so here Jesus gives this story, and Jesus looks at the religious and goes... Okay, you guys. And, and the word shepherd's not used, but he's assuming that. He goes, okay, you're, you're a shepherd. By the way, that's just an outright attack on them because they thought shepherds were lowly. That's why when Jesus comes in, it's announced the shepherds are not religious and staggering. And so, so he already kind of gives them something to chew on. He says, okay, you're, you're a shepherd here, and you have 100 sheep you're taking care of, and you lose one. 
what shepherd isn't going to leave the 99 in the open pasture to go find the one? In the daytime, you're in the open pasture. At the nighttime, you're all in the village in the pen. Now, these people knew the responsibility of that shepherd because you might have a relative who had only two sheep, and that one sheep that went away might be theirs. So that's deeply meaningful to them. So you bet you're responsible during the day for those sheep. So you, no time and effort is invaluable. It's all deeply valuable. You'll do whatever it takes to go find that one and bring it back. You realize it's your duty. You realize it's what you've been asked to do. And also understand that nobody... Nobody in this time is going to say, hmm, it's just one. Sally can take one for the team. Doesn't really, no, no one would. Because if anyone knows Shepherding 101, there's really one rule. Shepherding really has no rules but one. Don't lose sheep. I'm serious. Like, if you talk, you do any studies on Middle Eastern shepherds, you'll know. They know you don't lose sheep. You don't lose one. If one leaves, do everything you can to go find it. Okay, it's on you. It's on your responsibility. It's an outright just, uh, you know, ignorance to you, and people will mock you. If you come back and go, man, you lost my one sheep? Because you don't know whose one sheep that was. And so the shepherd would do everything he could to go get this sheep. So the shepherd is out. He's responsible. And the reason that no sacrifice time or effort is too much is because sheep are dumb and sheep are defenseless. You know, did you know sheep have no defense mechanism at all? At all. So if a sheep falls over sideways and doesn't lay down, it can't get up. And so it's just easy prey. So these shepherds knew what was at stake. They knew what it would cost. So the Pharisees already know the answer to this question. They already know in their heads the right answer, common sense. Uh, yeah, he must leave and go. It's his duty. It's his responsibility. It's deeply meaningful. Of course he would go get the one. Of course he would leave the 99 in the open pasture and have one other shepherd to help kind of like take care of them while he went to go find the one that was lost. That's the ethical component. That, that, that makes total sense. He knew the shepherd would understand the wilderness and days it spent to go there. And here's what would happen. Shepherd leaves, could take days, so he'd have other, sheep, other shepherds go and take the other 99 back to the pen. He would spend as many hours as necessary out to find it. And when he found it, it was usually defenseless, usually helpless, usually bloodied, usually beat up, usually something attacked it. And if it was still living, living or dead, he would pick up the sheep, put it on its back, tie its feet around his neck, and take the trek all the way back home through darkness. And here's what's amazing. It says that as he takes it back on its neck, does he walk home begrudgingly? Does he walk home miserable? He walks home rejoicing. It, there, there's joy in the shepherd finding the sheep because he knows the sheep is valuable. The sheep makes wool. Wool makes clothing. Clothing makes money. Like they, like they know that finding the sheep is deeply meaningful. So he picks up the sheep, dead or alive, takes it all the way back, all the way to celebration, right? He invites all his friends going, hey, I found the sheep. I found the sheep. The family that had him who found the sheep, they love it most because there's invested interest. So there's celebration. There's good food. There's good wine. Everybody's happy because the sheep was found. This is common in village life. Very normal. So everybody who shared ownership in the flock would join in the celebration to have the news they longed to hear. The shepherd was out maybe for days. He came back. He's got the, got the sheep. And at this point, the Pharisees totally get it again. <laughs> yeah, we're people of high ethics. Yeah, I mean, we would go get the sheep too. We, we have a moral standard. 
If one was lost, we would go find it. And then Jesus, I love it, he brings the left hook that no one sees. He always does that. He says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who need no repentance. Amen. Right? Now, guys, this is pure sarcasm. Like, no one misses this. Here's, here's what Jesus is basically doing. He goes, of course, Pharisee, scribe, of course, you don't need to repent. Of course. Of course, it's just the one, you know, who realizes he's helpless, realizes he's hopeless, realizes he's defenseless, realizes the only hope for him is entrusting himself to the loving arms of the good shepherd. But you guys, I mean, you never sinned, so you don't need to repent. So, yeah, you're the 99 self-made legalists, right? Of course. I mean, that's who they are. The Pharisees and scribes are the 99 self-righteous who say, I don't need to repent. And what Jesus is saying, do you realize how far you are from the heart of God? Right, you're the one who claimed to be the ambassadors for God, the voice of God, yet your heart doesn't share in any of the joy that his heart shares. You're so far from the heart of God. What gives God joy is that one sinner who repents, the one sinner who realizes that he's keenly need of grace and mercy and help. And so he says to them, but you're already righteous. So that's right, I forgot, you're good. Don't you see how far you are from the heart of God? They've bought the lie that they don't need to repent. They have nothing to repent over. They've already earned their flight. They're good. Well, yeah, I get him going to get the nasty guy who's beaten and broken and helpless, but me? So what we could say really as brothers and sisters is that anyone that doesn't rejoice and the loss being found does not share in the heart of God. That it, you're somehow out of touch with the heart of God. And here we see that is precisely the case with the proud and self-righteous, right? They pride themselves in being separated from them. Now, now, now here's the thing. Here is why I continue to say self-righteousness is so dangerous. It's because it's delusional. Because you forget who you were before the great shepherd came and picked you up in your helpless, defenseless state, beaten and broken and bruised by sin. And you think you're the guy that earned your way somehow, even though you didn't earn any grace that you got, and you now stand over people going, yeah, I know, they need it. Yeah, they need grace. They need mercy. They need help. But me, I'm good now. So once Jesus cleans you up, you try to clean yourself up again. And somehow the, the very grace that bought you is now somehow your grace that buys you. So you have to remember, it's delusional because you forget that you are the very same as them. Before the cross of Christ, right, born by nature and choice, we're all the same, dead in our sin, not wanting God, not wanting Jesus, not wanting righteousness, not wanting to flee sin and pursue Christ. None of us want that. So, so what happens is when you start growing up in your works and what you do, and you start looking at your achievements, looking down on everybody else, you've somehow totally forgotten the grace freely given to you. And so, so here he's given this analogy, given this picture going, you better be really, 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 really careful because your self-righteous heart is going to damn you in the end. And really, the most sinful out of anybody is you. He's trying to alarm them. He's trying to awaken them to who they are. So he gives one more, right? He's going to give a third, but he gives one more for today. Verse 8, he says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses a coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she found it, she calls together all her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found the coin that, has, that I had lost. 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Another story, <laughs> deeply understood. They totally get it. And, and these villages, there was usually a very poor village life. So you've got a small little brick house made of mud and straw. You've got this woman who is, is living in a hut that basically has a lot of debris, a lot of cracks, no windows, a low roof. And she loses a coin, right? Now, this is a lot for her, okay? Uh, One-tenth. This is a, a coin here. The same word is really a day's wage. So you have a tenth of her, her, her wage, right? Ten percent she loses. So she's, what does she do? She wants to find it. It's meaningful to her. So she flips on her little clay lamp and she gets on her hands and knees. She gets her twig broom out. She starts sweeping, looking through every nook and cranny until she finds that coin. It's meaningful to her. It's great loss. So she goes after it. And when she finds it, I love it. She calls all her friends and neighbors to celebrate. This, is, this word friends is different from the one in the lost sheep. This speaks of femininity. So she calls all her ladies over. They have tea and celebrate. She probably buys the tea with the coin she found. She loves it. They're celebrating. They're overjoyed because something has been recovered that was, that was lost. So Jesus' point again here is, hey, Pharisees, scribes, you understand this, right? And then he comes with his left hook again. In the same way, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus is saying, I'm doing this because it gives God joy. And your heart is so far from God because you don't share in this joy at all. You're actually not near to God at all. You think righteous works are meriting you something that are just a lie you've bought. Like grace is freely given. Salvation's freely given. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't win God's side. And here he's showing again that he's doing something that God loves. His joy is for the salvation, the rescue of people that you don't want to associate with. <laughs> That's who he's showing that he loves. So how can you affirm the importance of this woman finding this coin, but not affirm the importance of me finding lost souls? How can you understand the joy of a village, the joy of friends, and not the joy of God in saving sinners? Right? He's getting at their heart. Like, if you're a Christian, then you should share in the joy of lost people being found. That's why we exist, right? As a people, not just to give God glory, but give God glory in. Going out and being ambassadors of reconciliation. Demonstrating to a lost, broken, dying world there's something outside of us that rescues us from ourselves. Right? We love to see lost people saved. And if you don't, then there's something going on in your heart that is deathly. If there are parts of you when you see somebody who you despise being showed grace and mercy, there's something happening that's dysfunctional in your, sal in your saved heart. And it really gets at just how we view people. Now, this joy, just real quick, because I think we can read this wrong. I've heard this said a lot of different ways, and I'm not claiming to be the end all, but I will say it's not the angels celebrating and singing because salvation has been had. They're celebrating because God is filled with joy. 
It's coming from heaven, right? The, this is in Revelation 4 and 5. You see this. I love this, right? In Revelation 4, you've got all the inhabitants, the holy inhabitants, giving glory to God. Why? Because he's a God that creates. And you go to chapter 5, Revelation 5, and it shifts to giving glory to God because he's a God who redeems. So they are praising and singing, giving glory to God because he's a God who creates and he's a God who redeems. Listen, fallen angels cannot be redeemed and holy angels have no need to be redeemed. So they're not sharing in salvation, they're not, they're not sharing it that way. We know what it's like to be saved, right? We know what it's like to go over the threshold from death to life. So we can share in it in a very different way. Angels don't do that. They're celebrating God because God is being given joy. So like, I'm going to join in that. That's what angels do. That's what holy angels do. I'll join in the joy of God. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be redeemed, but man, God's being filled with joy, and so I'm going to celebrate that. That's what's happening here. God is the one who is giving off joy. The heart of God is pounding because one sinner repents of sin and turns to him through the purchasing work of his son, Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That, that, that? I mean, what Christian doesn't want to do something or see something that gives God joy? Because when we're saved, we become one with Christ. We're in union, right? So our heart shares his heart. Our mind shares his mind in the sense of him giving us illumination and understanding that we didn't have before. Amazing here. And I want to just say, I know you hear that word savior a lot, especially if you grew up in church, like, savior, like that just, that becomes so normal to us. Like, oh yeah, God saves. I know, I was dead, now I'm found. I know at Christmas, you know, savior, Jesus, right? But, but hold on, savior by nature, God being a savior is what separates God from every other God made with human hands. But like no other God makes and delights in rescuing and saving. No other God, an over-belief system, loves to make enemies of his, his own children. You won't find that anywhere, who he delights in saving, making new, and restoring. No, the God of the Bible is the only God that does that and that takes joy in that and celebrates it with all the holy inhabitants. What a great God we, praise God. I don't know why I say this, praise God he's not like us. Right? I mean, praise God, he is not like us. We do not want to make our enemies friends. We do not want to see the, truly, it's at times, we do not want to see the broken restored. We want to see them suffer a little. We want to see them go through some pain. But God is not like that. Amazing. That's why on Christmas morning, right, his parents are told what? Name him Jesus. Jesus is just the New Testament equivalent to the Old Testament name Jehovah saves. God's a relentless savior. This is one of his most blazing attributes. God saves people. God rescues people. Out of all of his character, out of all of his attributes, this one is red hot. This one is celebrated. So I gotta ask you a question. Do you share God's joy with this? Maybe when, when, you go to, when you go to speak to somebody, in whatever way you enter their narrative and you start speaking to them about the good news of Jesus, um, is it motivated by persuasion or punishment? Do you just want to see them, them to see how damned they are, how awful they are? Or in great love, are you motivated to persuade them of a truth that is greater than what they know? because you truly care and have compassion for their lost soul. 
Like, do people have souls? Like, when you see people, or does, do people just solely exist for you, to make much of you, and to care for you? The waitress at the restaurant, does she solely exist just to bring me my food, bring me my meal, and if you're late, you get no tip? Or does she have a soul, right? Like, like, like why, why do family members exist? Why do coworkers exist? Why do people exist? Because, hey, make much of me, feed my wants, pay attention to me, make much of, or do they have a soul? I mean, this is why I always think about Matthew 22 when Jesus says, hey, the greatest commandment, right? What's, what's, what's the greatest one? Hey, love Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And if you do that, then the second one is just right, right behind it, love your neighbor as yourself. So so here's what Jesus is getting at. If you're actually loving your neighbor as yourself, how are you going to treat your neighbor? Your neighbor's not just the guy with greener grass next to you. Now, he is. I mean, he is your neighbor in that sense. But your neighbor is everybody you rub shoulders with and the marks that God places you throughout your day. That's your neighbor. So, so, so do you, if, you if, if you see your neighbor, if you see the people around you that have literal souls... And you're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself, and you know the transcendent grace, mercy, and kindness where the good shepherd came to you in your brokenness, in your decrepitness, in your shame, and your sin, put you on his back, carried literally your sin and shame on a 100-pound cross, not just a 75-pound sheep, through darkness to the celebration of the Father, waiting to welcome you into his family. If you know all of that joy, well, how are you going to treat your neighbor? You're going to say, man, I want them to know the same thing that I know. So if I'm going to treat him like myself, and I am him, and I don't know that, I'm going to want him to know that. Right? I mean, there is this joy welling up in you where now you love your neighbor as yourself in the sense that he has a, he has a soul, and you share in God's joy in seeing lost people recovered. Just the temperament of our hearts. One thing, there are a number of things I pray every week. I have a, a, a markings at the bottom of my calendar that I just mark down prayers, right, every week for all of us in the church, and one of them daily is God, help us to share in your heart that we would love people who don't know you. Like, just, just protect us from being people that just become churchy. And don't realize there are people around us that have souls. Now, now if you're aware of the news last night and the news any day, we don't have time to waste on this. Right? People with souls are perishing. And be careful because if you get stuck in the mantra of look at all that I do, you'll be blind to everybody else around you and the mission that God's called you into. I mean, it's a prayer I actually pray in the car. God, help me when I see people to see them with souls. I can't tell you how that changes me. And I don't always do it well. I fail often. And God realigns my heart and reminds me. But do you share in God's joy? Do you love seeing people brought from death to life? Or is there a part of you that might like to condemn them, that might like to shame them? Maybe there are people at work and family where you're like, I actually enjoy thinking about them perishing eternally. I tell you, you have no understanding of the grace shown you. You have no understanding of the kindness lavished on you. And we need to seek that out more. So Jesus is getting at this, and that's why we see the Christological, the theological component. Where is Christ with the lost sheep? I love this. God's the one who seeks out the lost. We're lost. God's not lost. 
We walked away. God didn't walk away. But here you see in this the great shepherd who finds us hopeless, helpless, lifeless, literally bearing us on his back, doing all that it takes, all the work that it takes, the suffering son of God, bearing the wrath of God, shedding the perfect unblemished blood of God that was a righteous life that we desperately needed, rising, doing all the necessary work as he carried us on his back with our sin, with our shame, to the celebration of the Father. Jesus is our great shepherd. The shepherd does the seeking. The shepherd does the lifting. The shepherd does the carrying. The shepherd does the restoring. The shepherd does the celebrating. You had no part in it. The shepherd did all of it. So that's why it's so glorious. I mean, you got nothing to boast. And so he's laying before the Pharisees and scribes. You have, at the end of the day, nothing to account for yourself. Like, even your righteous works will earn you nothing in the kingdom of God. You need Jesus. What's so crazy in all these stories is Jesus is the one who's talking to them. The very righteous life they desperately need is right before them, and they're blind to it in their self-righteousness and pride, which is why it's so dangerous. And so we see Jesus as the, as the great shepherd, right? You know, um, earliest Christians, interesting, they, they um, didn't use the symbol of the cross, we now, you know, see it everywhere. Understandably, we want to remember, right, the cross of Christ. Um, most of them used a fish. That's why you see Jesus fishes on cars. Um, but, but earliest Christians, you know, they actually, the, the imagery was a shepherd with a sheep on its back. Like if you go to Israel, I love my time there. Almost all the shops I went into, one of the most prominent carvings out of wood was not a cross. It was a shepherd with a sheep on its back with its leg tines around his neck. Because Jesus truly is our great shepherd, is he not? Jesus indeed carries our sorrows, carries our grief, carries our shame, carries our sin that weighs upon us. And when we encounter him, he picks us up, puts us on his back, and heals us through the work of his son as he walks us through darkness to the celebration of God and all that are his. What a good shepherd. Where is Christ? Where is Jesus? Where's the the Christology with the lost coin? It's so similar. We're the lost coin. We're hidden in the cracks, debris. God intentionally, devotedly pursues us, lights the lamp of the gospel upon our hearts so that we can see his glory, see his nature, see his saving work for the first time in ways we've never seen it. Man, don't you, I love it when I have conversations with some of you, you're like, man, yeah, I I heard this good news of Jesus over and over and over, and then it was like a lamp got just turned on in my heart, and it's like I, I heard it, but I heard it. You know what I mean? Like, I always knew that, like, Christ saved me, or Christ was glorious, or that God was holier, that I was sinful, that God saved and rescued sinners. But then, like, it was this otherworldly, divine, yeah, that's the Holy Spirit of God illuminating your heart, right? First Corinthians 2, he did that to you, and now I see it, now I want it, now I chase him, he was after me, he grabbed hold of me. Those are, I love those stories, because that's what happens in this parable of the woman with the lost coin. God went after you and lit the lamp of the gospel over you, and you saw, and he picked you up and put you in the heavenly treasury of God's that was written before the foundation of the world. Amazing. He makes you rich in the kingdom, being a co-heir with Christ. He restores you back to the treasury you belong in. And it is God who breaks loose in joy. He had to come all the way down to earth 
all the way down to a cross, all the way down to death. He knelt in the dust and muck and mire that is the sin-stained world that we live in and picked us up. He said, you're mine. I'm making you worthy. I'm coming after you. He pursued us. You know, like I said, there's no religion that has a God like this who seeks and saves unworthy sinners. There's no belief system out there like that who prizes them as his own. And there's one final point I want to make, um, and it's very important. Verses 7 and 10 um, say something. say a word, and there's, there's a clause here. The sinner who repents... So it's not just, yes, God restores, God receives, God makes new, but something happens in the heart of the one who's found. Something happens in the heart of the one that's picked up. There's what's called repentance. And we've been talking about this a lot in Luke. We're seeing it over and over and over again. And it shows, Jesus makes it clear that this does not happen without what's called repentance. Now, um, this is really important because both of these stories say it. It's going to come full circle, seen really brightly next week in the prodigal son. You're going to really see a picture of repentance. A turning from folly, turning from sin, turning to the heart of God, turning to Christ. But here we see repentance. Let me just end with showing you. If you, if you look just at repentance in general, everyone will say it's basically three things. It's very easy. There's confession in your heart, there's contrition in your heart, and there's change in your heart. Okay? I hardly ever do outlines. There's your three C's. Send me an email and applaud me, because I know I never do that, and I know you're asking for it. So there it is, right? You got, you got confession, you got contrition, you got change. Now, here's what confession is. Your mind meets your heart, right? You start confessing. Your mind is agreeing with God. So there's no buts. There's periods at the ends of your statement. So you're not excusing. You're not belittling. You're not uh, justifying. No, I have strayed. Yes, I have sinned. Yes, I have not wanted you to be God. I have not loved you as God. I have not made much of you as God. I have sinned. I have ran to folly and not to Jesus. It's raw honesty. You see this in Psalm 51 with David. I've, I've sinned before you. I'm not making excuses. I know my intentions and motivations, and, but I had a bad day. Or No. It was sin. Confession's honest. Confession is just acknowledging without blame shifting or excusing or justifying, God, I've sinned. And then there's contrition. Sin bothers you more than a desire just to ease your conscience. It's not just because you made a mess of your life and you're mad because you made a mess of your life. It's because your heart is grieved because God's heart is grieved. Right? David says, against you only have I sinned. Sure, he sinned against the husband of Bathsheba. Sure, he sinned against many other people, but against you only have I sinned. Because you are holy. The standard is you, not people. So your heart is grieved with a godly sorrow, the scriptures will call it. When you repent, when you ask for forgiveness, is it a godly sorrow or worldly sorrow where you just feel bad? And then there's change. Because if you have true confession and true contrition and you see the good news of the gospel and what he's done for you, there cannot be change. Repentance leads to change. That's why it's a turning away from and turning to. And so, yes, I've strayed. Yes, I've wandered. Yes, I've belittled your name. But I am now repenting of sin. I'm confessing it honestly. And I'm turning back to the good shepherd and the woman with the lost coin, right? These imageries of Jesus being the great Savior who saves what is lost, turning to him saying, I'm found. There's grace here. There's mercy here. There's kindness here. I'm not under wrath. I'm not under judgment. I'm under mercy. And that's good news as you turn back to Jesus. Repentance produces change. Many give lip service to God in their confession and leave no different. Their lives don't change. 
fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Their lives don't change as they pursue Christ because they're not pursuing Christ. They're just avoiding sin. They're just sin managers. Guys, repentance is not not sinning. I mean, many of you guys know this. I feel like we sit down every week with brothers and say, no, no, no. Sin is not avoidance. I mean, repentance is not sin avoidance. There's no pursuit of Jesus in you. 2 Timothy 2.22 gives one of the most beautiful examples of fleeing youthful passions, lust, all these other wants of the world, and pursuing righteousness, peace, those who call upon the name of the Lord with a pure heart. All of a sudden, there's a pursuit in you, right? So you're turning from sin, but there's a headlong pursuit to the one who saved you and is saving you. That's why repentance is not just what enters you into the kingdom of God. Repentance is also what keeps you in the kingdom of God. Not in your merit of repentance, Jesus does that, but repentance, the act of confessing, repenting is the ongoing process, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. You don't stop repenting after you become a Christian, right? You keep repenting because there's a God who loves to forgive. And here's what's insane about this text. It gives God joy when you repent. So you're like, man, when I repent, I don't know how God feels about that. I think he's shaking his fist, pointing his finger, just mad at me. No, it says it gives God joy. He's rejoicing when you repent. How exciting is that? That when you confess and have contrition and change and turn to Jesus, that it gives him joy. See, religion says you're beat up, you're bruised, you made a mess of your life, nah, try to fix it. Jesus says, I'll come fix it for you. I'll pick you up, I'll heal you, I'll walk you, I'll restore you, I'll carry you. And we keep turning to that good shepherd. We keep leaning into that good shepherd who we strayed from. Some of you has, have resisted repentance. Um, maybe you're very religious, so it pains you to say, I'm wrong. It pains you to say, mm, I've offended this, I've done this, I've done this. That's a dangerous place to be. Others of you are, are, are fearful of repenting because you don't know how God will respond. So let me give you two things. One, he already knows. He's not going, oh my goodness, I can't believe. I... He knows. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. It's so warming to me that he knows because I know that when I turn to him, it doesn't surprise him and he's a God who's eager to forgive. I'll tell you that if you repent of your sin and turn to Christ, that he rejoices in your repentance. You know what this means, brothers and sisters? That no matter how heinous the sin someone we see might commit, if there's repentance, we rejoice with them because we share in the heart of God that rejoices in that. And if there is none, we grieve in that because God is grieved in that. It's, it's mind-boggling that God would rejoice in our repentance, and, and so here's a great opportunity for us to practice repentance. That's why we do Lord's Supper every week, because it's a chance for us to repent of sin, to confess sin, to ask God for a holy contrition, a holy contrite heart that is filled with godly grief and godly sorrow that leads to change not fueled by our efforts, but fueled by Jesus and his Holy Spirit that enables us to do it all. So we come to these tables, we remember, we look at, man, his body was broken, his blood was shed, that's why I could repent, and that's why God can be filled with joy when I repent, because the wrath that was towards me, the necessary penalty for sin that was towards me and do me, Christ took care of it so God can be given joy. And God can celebrate his son in you. 
So for those of us who are Christians, Sunday morning is just an ongoing act of repentance. Some of us, Sunday morning is you entering the fold of God for the first time and trusting yourself to the great shepherd. So we're gonna take some time before we sing and celebrate. We're gonna sing and celebrate because God's a God who saves sinners. We're gonna come to the Lord's table and here's what Paul would say and, and Jesus would say is this is serious, this is weighty, this is meaningful. So when you come, before you come, you examine your heart. That means you confess any sin that might be there. And you ask God for a contrite heart and you ask God with the help of his Holy Spirit the ability to turn from that sin and turn to him and see his great work and see his body broken and see his blood shed. And if you're not a Christian, don't come to the table. But if you repent of sin and turn to Christ and entrust yourself to him, you're welcome. As you do the same as we do in the sense of being made new for the first time. So let's ask God for help, ask God to be celebrated, ask God to fill our, our souls with joy that fills his soul. God, thank you that you're a God that loves to save sinners. God, thank you that you came to protect and rescue us from ourselves. Thank you that the purchasing work of Jesus goes into the deepest cracks and spaces and debris of our hearts. Thank you that it is you that pursues, you that restores, you that carries, you that makes new, you that initiates the celebration. God, thank you that you have made some new in this place. And God, we pray that you would make many more new in Christ. We pray that our heart would share your joy as we're out among those who do not know you. Would you help us, Lord? We know the residual effects of the fall that remain in us. War against us, Lord, but we're thankful that he that is in us is greater than anything of the world. So God, would your Holy Spirit continue to overpower the temptation to sin? God, would your Holy Spirit continue to overpower our longings and desires for lesser things? God, may we celebrate you because you're a God that shows amazing, staggering grace to sinners. In Jesus' name, amen.